Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ. I also want to thank my listeners around the globe. Never, ever give up hope is now heard in close to 70 countries, and that is absolutely thrilling. And the reason it's thrilling is not only because the show is growing and growing rapidly, but also because of the lives that it is touching around the globe. It is a message of hope that we share that the world needs and wants to hear. It does not matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your financial position is. It doesn't matter what your educational background is. We all have problems we have to face. We're human. And no one is immune to problems. And all of us at some point need the message that there is, in fact, hope. That other people have gone through similar experiences that we have gone through. And my guests always share their experiences and how they thrived, how they overcame, how they survived, and how they soared above negative things in their lives. And that's what I love about my guests. I've now interviewed over a 100 different guests, and each of them has the same message, which is a message of hope and encouragement. And many of them also offer coping skills and tips and how we can accomplish that. And that is what one of the things that my uh, guest is going to do today and I am so pleased to have Marissa Pendlebury. She is a public health researcher. She has degrees in nutrition, in health sciences, and in psychology. And through her website, which is called Nourishing Roots, sounds very intriguing, she helps individuals develop a positive and a compassionate relationship with themselves first with food and exercise and with other people as well. Thank you, Marissa. Hi, Carol. Hi. Now, as a young girl, Marissa, you suffered with eating disorders, and that is not uncommon. It certainly is a problem, and along with that is anxiety, and I think they probably go hand in hand, and you'll be able to share uh, that with us. So tell us how this started in your life and how it affected your life. So did eating part of my life actually started when I was around 13 to 14, which is a t- typical age probably. And I used to be quite heavily involved in athletics and music. And I was quite an not overly academic child, but I did have a sense of pressure that there was nothing that was ever good enough and that I was always striving to be the best at something. So somebody else, else was a runner or someone else played the piano I would have this sense of competition inside of me mm. I think that was just the way 
way I was brought up in general. Um, my family were always really loving. There was nothing wrong with my family in terms of how they treated me and how they expected my body to be. But I do remember vividly experiencing that I just wasn't good enough. And no matter how fast I ran or no matter how well I played the piano or how, how hard I practiced, there was always this inner voice, which I call the inner mean girl, which was just telling me that, you know, you'll, you know, you need to try that bit harder, try that bit harder. And when I tried to put my mind to something, it had to be perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, I would beat myself up because of it. Um, and I remember that from quite a young age. But specifically when I was around 13 to 14, I'd noticed that my running times hadn't been as good as they were in the past. And I just had this feeling that I just wanted to give up. I had so much pressure from my coaches and there was a lot of finals that I needed to get into regarding running athletics wise in order to make certain teams. Mm -hmm. And there was just this build up and build up of pressure. And at that time, well, in England, we also move into year nine at high school, which is there's so many changes that happen. You kind of move into different classes. Mm -hmm. You get moved away from your friends you're suddenly in the deep end trying to study th for things that you want to do when you're older and at that age at 13 14 you don't really know um, and I remember having this feeling inside that oh my gosh who am I and how can I make myself good enough in this massive competitive market that I'm in and in all honesty through through what had happened in in terms of a recent relationship too which was only a young relationship but my current partner at that time um yeah he we we didn't last very long it was only one of those young romantic relationships but I remember he he went out with my one of my close friends very soon after me and I really questioned myself thinking there must be something really wrong with me and I just remember looking down at my body and thinking oh my god gosh and these light bulbs flashed in my head it's it's because of my body that's why my running times are not good enough that's why you know I'm not I don't feel attractive that's why I'm not getting much attention from people and I've never really been an attention seeker but I did feel as though I didn't have enough love in mm -hmm. my life or I didn't feel I had and very close friends and because I've been quite an introvert to be honest and I like to spend lots of time with family so I hadn't really had had time to make connections with other people and as well as my running and music I always just just doing something else I just remember actually just placing all of my faults in inverted commas on my weight and body and from a click of a finger I just felt that I needed to just go on a diet and just stop eating and I remember saying to myself I actually went to my room I used to have a secret stash of sweets actually in my bedroom which says something about the way I actually thought about food in general I thought it was something to hide or to be secretive if I was seen eating sweets but I just remember thinking having one of them and feeling like I can't I can't actually eat another one of them I feel grotesque I feel disgusted in myself and from that moment on over the next six months it was just a period of what I would describe as a blur of just just starvation trying too hard with my studies I just engrossed myself so much in my work as a distraction from the fact that I was probably not really getting enough nourishment to fuel my body and fuel my mind no way was I happy let me interrupt you for just a moment Marissa before you get too far off from what you just mm -hmm. shared what is that a common scenario that 
girls who feel that they are not accomplishing what they want to accomplish? They relate it to their eating habits? Or is it just, a, do you think um, it was just from my your own, case? Oh, I think it's quite widespread. I mean, from people that I've, various people I've met um, through either mentoring or just young girls, even at my own age at that time, it was such a, it seemed like it was a big issue. Okay. That people didn't feel good enough and I think in our society anyway, so many messages that, you know, you need to be slim to be good, mm-hmm, even if mm-hmm. that's an implicit one. And I think we internalise that from a very young age, even males these days too. And I think if you make that connection, whether it's a false one or not, I mean, you don't need to be slim to be a good person. It's absolutely ridiculous. But I think a lot of women do latch onto the idea that, you know, if I was a little bit slimmer, maybe I'd get a better job. Maybe people would accept me more maybe I'd feel better about myself but you're actually looking for external validation Mm -hmm, rather than from mm -hmm. the real source which should be acceptance with yourself okay so continue with what happened so you were um you went through six months of intense starvation basically right yes yes and then continue what happened well after around six months I I I really started to realise, you know, there might be a problem here. My, my weight had really plummeted. I mean, I was really quite a strong built girl. I was much bigger from like the average girl at my age because I used to do sprinting. Mm. So in order for me to sprint, I needed to have big muscular legs. And I did develop a little bit more earlier than my, my peers did. But I'd never really kind of felt, how can I say, I never felt fat or overweight as such. But during the time, I'm a starvation I always felt fat and overweight I always felt that there was always like an extra inch to pinch so to say mm. and I felt like no if I was just lost this little bit more I'd feel better once I get to this way I'll feel a little bit better and then I'll stop but at the end of that six months I, I decided I wanted to stop I didn't actually want to lose any more weight but when it came to it I actually couldn't put any food in my mouth through absolute fear and I actually remember wanting to eat a cheese toasty and think it I can't. I actually physically can't. I can't let myself do that. And as much as my family tried to encourage me to eat, I would just became really adamant that no, I felt that they were trying to get control or trying mm. to um, impinge on something beautiful that I'd created because I thought, oh, well, now I'm I'm slim, now I'm happy. But I wasn't happy at all. I think I just deceived myself into mm-hmm. thinking I'm a, I was a happier person. Um, but then after that six months and I realised it become a problem for myself, it was like the road just became deeper and deeper and deeper. Unfortunately, it led to me being hospitalised for the first time, which I never thought it would get, ever get to that stage. I mean, I never actually set out with the intention to have an eating disorder. And, and being in a room where a doctor says you have anorexia nervosa, mm. I was like, I felt like laughing. I felt like I haven't got that. That's something that people who was severe mental health problems happen I I haven't got that in my family I used to love food I'm not I never associated myself with Mm -hmm. someone who was who was anorexic but looking at behavior my behaviors back then and my thought processes it was that was fully the case um but then if I just fast forward a few um a few years onwards after unfortunately several inpatient hospitalizations because unfortunately I did end up quite poorly and and didn't want to get well it came to a point in my life where my my granddad, who I was extremely extremely close to, he was like he was actually like my dad because I grew up with my granddad when my parents worked full time, and I know how much he really wanted me to get well, and I remember sitting during the time that he died and thinking, gosh, 
what have I actually done to myself? And this oh. period of, I can't go on like this, not only for myself, but for my future family, for my future friendships. And I actually felt, you know, my granddad had been so supportive and he always used to say, oh, you know, you're such a sensitive soul. You've got so much to offer the world. I wish you could see it. And he would be there with me literally every day. He'd come and visit me every day in hospital. He'd bring me some food, you know, to see if I would try mm-hmm. them. And he never, ever, ever gave up hope on me even when I'd completely give up he was always there and my parents too actually to like they they were really supportive too but my granddad in particular and my nan it was like they were my rocks they were really Mm -hmm. my rocks and when when he passed away I had this this sense inside it was like I am going to get well I don't care what barriers I have to face but this has to happen because not only do I want to get well, but I also want to use my experience to help other people. Um, and at that point, I'd, I'd gone through college and I'd studied health and social care. And that kind of flicked a switch inside of me to say, I, I'm really interested in health, but I want to study it for the right reason. And I'd also applied for a nutrition and dietetic degree at university. And I'd got a funded place. I'd gone through all the processes of getting that which was really competitive and I thought you know what that's not for me it's too clinical it's getting too (laughs) caught up in the idea that food is medicine purely medicine and I knew inside of me that it wasn't there was more to food than just thinking about calories which was all I ever thought about food in food was just numbers and how much it would contribute to my weight how much it would would how how it would make me feel into terms of disgust it was never anything about joy and I'm, I remember feeling really? that I want to make food yes and I remember thinking I want to make food something that's about joy it's about enjoying pleasure again because that's what my granddad used to always tell me it's like food Marissa it's so much more you need to get back in touch with your your inner child he was like oh you used to love ice cream you used to love bread you used to love sandwiches you used to love fish and chip and uh, which is a typical British thing which I used to live off when I was younger at my granddad's were you so, able yeah, to continue your athletic uh ventures at all as you were getting ill or did that have to well, be put on the shelf unfortunately at the same time I think just as I was getting into the depths of my eating disorder I actually stopped my athletics not only because my times were really bad but I just didn't have the energy and I never became obsessed by exercise in the sense that someone classified with exercise obsession would have but my focus came on things like you know I need to walk a certain amount of steps per day in order to keep fit mm-hmm. and my idea of health was staying within these guidelines such as I'd say oh you know you need to have x amount of calories a day but I would significantly have to go under that in order to feel safe um and the same with exercise too unless I had got out in the morning and had a long long walk I didn't feel safe for the rest of the day mm. I mean, I've always been quite an anxious person, but I think eating disorder definitely exacerbated that. And how long of a time period from the time that you first felt that you were fat or whatever, you know, word that you choose to put on it and to yourself, how long did it take to come to the realization that, in fact, you were hurting yourself and not helping yourself? Was Probably it... around two to three years, no if I'm kidding. honest. I think a time came when I did think I wanted to get better but I think the eating disorder voice was so strong at that point that it wasn't ready to let go and I think I had to go further and further down down on my journey to Mm -hmm. kind of get back 
up again. I think I needed to hit rock bottom to realise that, you know, this is not a life. You know, I was not living. I was just existing. If that, I'd lost friends, I'd lost connections with family. And I, I just didn't want it to go on anymore after around three years. Was this your reason for your anxiety or was it mostly because of the food or a combination? It was definitely a combination. Um, I would always feel anxious if, you know, if I didn't have food at a certain time. Even looking at the kitchen or hearing in hospital, for example, they used to have this food trolley. And every time I used to hear the food trolley coming, I would literally shake, shake in fear. And if I seen a kitchen, I would shake. But um, at the time of my granddad dying, I remember visiting um, one of my favourite garden centre cafes on the exact day that he died. And it hadn't really sunk in then yet. But I looked up at the sky and it was really dark at that time. It was actually around bonfire night, just around that time. Mm-hmm. And I looked up at the sky and I actually felt this overwhelming sense of fear. And I'd never felt anything so intense before in my life. I, honestly, it was I don't know any other ways to describe it. So I just felt felt like curling up in a ball and hiding away in a corner. But I felt like the universe wanted to swallow me up. And from that moment on, I became very fearful of actually going outside. Um, I felt like anything, to, especially anything to do with space or like the nighttime skies, anything to do with stars and the TV or planets, it would frighten me so much. I felt like the world was spinning and I couldn't get off the world. It and that lasted for around two years while trying to get well at the same time. How do you but, connect that oh, with, with your food disorder or do you? I think it was slightly separate. I think I think I had a lot of anxiety around food at the time and that contributed to okay. just a general heightened sense of anxiety anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that combined with my granddad passing away and then suddenly looking up at the sky. I think my mind's attributed to that, to what I was actually looking at. Um, and it was just that association that just from that click of a moment it clicked a switch in my brain that I just became so fearful of stepping outside but I just built it up in my mind so much um I just withdrew within myself from that point and and again even though I decided to have this mission to get well I was also battling (laughs) two demons at the same time then unfortunately I wanted to get well and battle my food but I also had this that I couldn't go outside which was also stopping me from going on walks and things so it was like one was like fighting against the other and I just wanted to like really just fight my way out but finding it just a hundred percent more difficult than I thought it would be. And what was the turning point then because you already had made a decision that you wanted to be well but mm. was there anything in particular that triggered um, what you needed to do or did you get help what was the turning point yeah yes well the turning point for me was actually um, I mean I used to have counseling sessions but someone advised me to actually go to one of my local youth centers and volunteer and it was actually volunteer for an organization I used to be a part of which was called girls group and it was about helping young women develop their relationships with their body in a positive way yeah. and also help get themselves a foot on the ladder and love themselves a bit more. And I benefited from that so much when I was in hospital and on my outpatient visits, I would go to that group. But I thought, oh, you know what, I find that really fulfilling to just kind of go to. And it's only on an evening and it's in, closed, in, a, in a closed environment. It's somewhere I feel safe. And as soon as I'd volunteered on the first day, I just had this. I volunteered bug, so to speak. I felt felt so good that 
I'd been able to help somebody else and especially young women too that I got a book for volunteering and it proved my confidence so much that instead of thinking about food 24 7 Mm. I actually started thinking about when I'm going to be able to go volunteer and I met so many other inspiring people through different organizations that I've volunteered for over the years that that's been my not only a distraction but it's been my huge motivating factor and to realize that at the center of volunteering is also compassion yes actually other people first and through developing a more compassionate mindset it soon clicked that hang on I'm giving all my time to lots of other people but am I really being compassionate to myself at the same time and you know in the way that I was born to be compassionate to myself and I realized that you know as much as I was trying to get well, well with food and eat according to mm-hmm. a meal plan it was still very very rigid and the thought of moving away from something structured again felt something really fearful I'm sure a lot of people with eating disorders or any form of disordered eating can relate to it's a fear that you know everything's going to spiral out of control if you don't follow a Mm -hmm. certain plan if you don't have this regime set up and everyone's kind of looking for this magical miracle meal plan Mm. that they can stick to and their eating disorder will go away but in reality it's actually the more you step away from a meal plan I mean as important as they are I mean it's good to have structured meal times and you know mm-hmm. having enough energy per day but the more that's the main focus and your weight's the main focus as a lot of clinicians place focus on the weight right. and what you're eating it's not actually solving the underlying issue it's about getting to a place where you understand that you have a much more important part to play in the world than just trying to control your own life and when you can step outside that bubble and realize you have a much much positive role to play in the world than helping other people and being more loving towards yourself without being judgmental and that you Mm. you have to be good enough and you have to be perfect and you have to have the best career and the best job and how how we're taught through university and college then you have this sense of calm that's all I can describe it off as this you're in a calm place so nothing Mm. else matters other than you know you have a purpose and, and sense of meaning in life did you have any kind of support system around you? And this is a twofold question. Also, were, were you mm-hmm. friends with any other young women who were going through the same thing? So in other words, yes, what, go yes. ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks for asking that, Carol. Um, it's a really important question because, yeah, I think my friends that I'd made, funnily enough, actually in inpatient setting, those who wanted to kind of get well too, mm-hmm. I've made some really strong bonds with over the years. And we were like a little tribe of like, like we were really supportive of one another. And I still get letters from people now just to see how I'm doing. And I keep in contact with people online. Mm-hmm. And it really, really does help to have that buddy system in place. And um, for me, I even had like I made some other friends and my current partner is so supportive. He's, he's I think it's just been accepted that other people know what you're going through they don't have to have experienced it themselves before um but they're also just really compassionate with you you too mm-hmm. and they can understand that you want to get well and that they're there no yes. matter what um and another support system that's helped is um actually just taking time out for myself and going to like my favorite little cafes around the corner <laughs> and just spending some time for me to actually think daydream be creative mm-hmm. and you know when, when you've got a disordered eating um, or an eating disorder or any form of actually chronic illness, 
it can be very very mind consuming so you yes. don't you don't you don't get yourself involved in anything else you think about you just have this illness as your identity um and to give you just a quick example I, I work with a group with fibromyalgia at the moment and they're such such a supportive group they really are really great group but at the same time a lot of them do have this identity around the illness and they feel guilty you know for spending time for themselves they feel unworthy because for example they might not be able to work full time but that time really is so they can feel well and energized and for them to Mm -hmm. you know feel that they can put their their own life back on the menu but I think as a society I don't know about you Carol but we some can sometimes feel as though we always have to be doing something Mm -hmm. productive whether that's, you know, getting an essay completed, doing something at work, striving for the next best career ladder rung. And when we actually sit down and do nothing or <laughs> be creative for ourselves, we feel guilty yes. unnecessarily, but we, we sometimes do. Yes, that's definitely my problem. Now, you had mentioned at one point there's a relationship with food and body and also a psychology of eating. What do you mean by that? Explain that to us. Mm-hmm. Oh, really by that, it's such a vast concept. So when I think about food and our relationship with food, I'm really talking about the mind-body connection that we have with food and not just seeing food as nutrients and just fuel and medicine. Actually, it's a huge part of our social lives. And that includes from birth. I mean, from birth, we have such a close relationship with our mother and whether we're breastfed or bottle fed having that nutrients with it within us from such mm-hmm. a young age and, and being nurtured and nestled next to our mother and that close contact we make such a positive connection with food at a very very early age which can last a lifetime you, you know people have sometimes certain smells they can resonate with food during a young age and they have positive memories with food and for example for me it might be walking along the beach with some chips with my parents or my grandparents or having ice cream on a sunny day, or eating chocolate at night, or popcorn with a movie. And we have these strong, strong connections that we really just can't break apart by just viewing it as something like, oh, we need to have X amount of calories a day, or you need to have this amount of this vitamin each day, so here's a pill to eat, or you need to have this amount of macronutrients in your meal. And I think we we come to a very detached place with food when we get that intricate about weighing food counting calories and it gets away from the mind-body connection with food that food has so many positive emotions and negative emotions too but it's about getting to a place where we realize that food is completely social it's cultural it's emotional um at the moment there's a lot around it's kind of bad to be an emotional eater but we are all emotional eaters by trade you know with a stamp on it and the stamp approval because just as I said before, we, we have these emotional attachments to food, whether we eat when we're sad, whether we, we eat when we're happy as well. I mean, there's so much research to show that we don't just eat when we're stressed out and reaching for a Ben and Jerry's tub of ice cream, that you know, <laughs> celebrations also around food. You know, no one goes to, say, their favourite coffee shop or goes out on the birthday and says, oh, I'm just going to eat a lonely salad on my own rather than order the nicest cake off the menu and, and have that with a friend which I'd argue is more important. I think there's more health benefits in going out and eating something that you really emotionally and maybe physically want to, rather than isolating yourself and being alone, eating something that's really rich in nutrients. I'd really 
really wonder which one's the most stressful and toxic position to be in. It could be a whole new education for a lot of people to understand that relationship. Is there anything else you want to share along that line that's just so intriguing? Um, yes, it, it would um, actually pave the pathway for me to just talk about something very quickly, which some of your audience may resonate with, especially around food, is uh, the concept of something called orthorexia which is tying in with the idea that, you know, food is just about nutrients and fuel and control. I kind of an obsession with clean eating in inverted mm-hmm, commas. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of this notion at the moment that there is clean and unclean food. So to say something's clean eating also implies that there's a dirty way of eating. <laughs> it's like, you know, someone says, oh, I've been really good today. I've had a salad or I've been really good today. I've skipped breakfast. Or they might go, oh, I've been really naughty. I opened a packet of biscuits. And these things, really, we shouldn't be associating with sin and morality. Like, food should not be associated with morality, even though for hundreds of years it has done through certain religious cultures. I mean, even tomatoes, funnily enough, years ago were associated with sin because they were red colour and they would let out oozing juices. So people used to associate them with lust. Culturally ingrained, though, at the moment, that health is your wealth and that to eat something that's a dirty food, so... Not that this is the dirty food, but say if you, for example, someone ate a packet of biscuits or a cake mm-hmm. that, oh, no, is full of refined sugars. People might, oh, the police come out and say, oh, you shouldn't really eat that. You know, it's really bad for you. The calorie police? No, you might get diabetes. <laughs> yes, the calorie police. Oh, do you know how many calories in that? Oh, my God. Do you know how much you'd have to burn off on a treadmill to burn that off? And it's, I honestly feel so sad when hearing things like that. And I hear it so often, whether I'm in a coffee shop and there's a conversation going on at the side of me when someone eats something they feel the need that they now need to go and burn it off or compensate and we shouldn't really need to have a compensatory relationship with food I mean optimally it's about joy it's about loving yourself it's about nourishing the body and nourishing the mind and the soul and your relationships because because food it's so far expanding in the way it impacts our lives it's not just about having the perfect diet or the perfect exercise regime and the perfect muscularity and the perfect protein and carb content so you know, you're worth you, so much more than what you put in your body where do you find that balance you know because what you're saying is is all well and good but what about those who are really struggling and and they have a hard time finding balance with food and not overeating mm-hmm. or undereating. Like, where does that balance come from in relation to what you're sharing about the psychology of eating? Well, for me and others that I've spoke to and mentored, it, it kind of comes back to the place of what we started talking about earlier, which is is that notion of compassion. And I think unless we're willing to step into a place of self-compassion okay. and acceptance with ourselves that we are worth more than what we eat, then it's then it's time to take steps forward with our foods and realizing that even if you just challenge yourself to change one aspect of your relationship with food each day or once a week and challenging some thoughts you may have around certain foods such as whether a certain food is good a certain food is bad or eating at a certain time is good and eating at a certain time is bad all right so basically like you were sharing Mm -hmm. earlier it has to do with all those factors yes yes definitely and to kind of get into that mode of self-love, it comes, comes yes. to a point of you have to realise that, you know, you may might not be giving yourself as much love as you need, which a lot of people find difficult. A lot of people think they are looking after themselves because they might be eating a really nutritious diet or they exercise enough. 
but they're just two aspects of health that society generally promotes us. There's no app out there that I've seen that counts how many hugs you have per day or how many times you say to yourself, you know, I'm deserving of love and affection. And I think those are so intrinsically important to well-being and, and things like creativity too. Like there's so many elements to well-being that if we can tap into those, I think the nutrition side comes later. Um, I mean, there's even some evidence to suggest that when we have a positive relationship with food rather than having, you know, how can I describe it? Say someone who, you know, they don't really care about like what times they eat, the types of nutrition they put in the body. They eat a balance of nutrient dense foods but they also have a bit of cake when they want to as compared to someone who's very regimented that right. when they actually eat food um their actual body extracts more nutrition from it than the person who's in a constant state of stress and worry about food which would make sense at a biological level because they're constantly anxious about where food's next going to come from is it going to be good enough for you mm-hmm. is it going to be able to satisfy them um a lot of people with this mentality around food have experience in restriction starvation and then maybe overeating or maybe not overeating but the body evolutionary will go into a mode where it's very focused and on food whether that's obsession with cookery channels or reading lots of books around food but never actually cooking what you really want to and that's very stressful for the body to be in in a constant state of hunger emotionally and psychologically mm-hmm. Did you find that that's what happened to you like before you came into this realization that as your eating became more healthy and you were more aware of it, that your anxiety levels were changing? Oh, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Um, as soon as I started to kind of go on this journey towards being more compassionate with myself and actually taking time out for myself, I, my anxiety levels dropped massively. I was able to get in touch with more creative hobbies again, such as cross-stitching. Sound really sad now, but even just going out for a walk and drinking Mm -hmm. some nice coffee, colouring in, things that I would never normally allow myself to do because I would plough myself into work. Right. Actually taking time to sit with a friend and it massively reduced my anxiety levels because I felt worthy of food again. I didn't feel like I needed to punish my my body in any way if I'd eaten something. That's so interesting. Worthy Mm -hmm. of food again. Like you were depriving yourself and now, very interesting concept. Anything else you want to share along those lines before we go uh, to the next Um, part? Yeah, just what you just mentioned really, which was the the worthy enough. um, It was that sense of if I'd previously in my eating disorder past had something that tasted pleasurable, I would feel instantly like that wrong. That was even if it had no calories in it at all, it just felt wrong. It felt like I didn't deserve it and I needed to get rid of it. I was never bulimic, but I always used to think that like, oh, I should not have done that. And I'd beat myself really? up or work harder or till three o'clock in the morning trying to trying to work off the guilt. Or if I'd bought something for myself, if I'd bought a cup of tea in the morning, I'd feel like, oh, I can't have one in the afternoon now because I've already bought myself something. I would go weeks without buying anything for myself because I didn't feel as though I would be able to buy something without having this anxiety feeling of guilt and remorse that I didn't. I haven't done enough to deserve that. So what are you saying as far as uh, an encouragement to someone who may may be going through one or or more stages than what you had already gone through? Is there any word of encouragement that you can give to them specifically to help them to keep going, to keep pressing forward and whatever you want to share along those lines? Yeah, I mean, well, hopefully 
exactly the, a, a big word of advice is that I can understand you know for listeners out there if you are experiencing something with a you know, food disorder relationship with eating or body or poor body image that I can totally understand how how difficult that can be but at the same time if you're able to start learning to love yourself again and you, which you're completely worthy of doing because it's in our genetic makeup to actually learn to love others and ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's what's helped us to survive. And that no matter how bad you feel about yourself now, that you fully, fully deserve to love yourself. Like in this moment, no matter what you weigh, no matter your body size, no matter what you've eaten, no matter what someone tells you about yourself or the way that you look or how much exercise that you've done, it's like in this very, very moment right now, you're a fully worthy and perfect human being. And that there mm. is light at the end of the tunnel because I, I've had times where I've, I don't like saying it, but I just didn't feel like carrying on anymore because I yes. didn't think I would ever be able to get out of a hole because it felt so deep. I felt like the light had gone. I felt like I would never be able to pick up a certain food without it being at a certain meal time or that it had to fit in a certain calorie count. I mean, I couldn't even look at if the food didn't have the calories in the back of the packet, I wouldn't be able to eat it. And then it really? came to the stage of, well, if it was in a packet, I wouldn't be able to eat it because then it was suddenly dirty. It'd been man-made. It had chemicals in it. So I think I've been in lots of different stages of disordered eating. But to actually now get to a stage where I, I do love myself like wholeheartedly and I love food and in a non-controlling way and I can just eat when I want and what I want, current lifestyle patterns. You had mentioned something mm-hmm. about compassion. We, you touched on it a couple times as far as in relationship to healing. Is there anything else you want to share about that? I know how it helped you when you started the volunteer work and looking at others, but is there maybe a, a, a deeper point that you want to make here regarding that? Um, yes, I mean, by the word compassion, anyway which is about like treating yourself with loving kindness and realizing that we're all part of humanity and we are all connected together also about realizing that nobody is perfect and that striving for this ideal image of perfection whatever that may be for you is unrealistic and it's actually probably driving you more in a hole and in a corner than it is allowing yourself to flourish and reach your full potential because the more we try to strive for perfection we have to take a step back really and think well, what is this standard of perfection and, and who has created it? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it's not us. It's actually society's standard of perfection or somebody else's standard yes. of perfection who yes. wants to be, who wants some form of approval. And that form of approval is actually something that we can't give ourselves. So we try to change our body and we try to change mm-hmm. our food or go on the next latest diet to gain that. You know, we feel, oh, I feel better about myself if I do that. Or if I have this latest cosmetic surgery, I'll feel better. But actually, the real truth and key to the code lies within each of us right now. And if you can actually, I'm just hypothetically thinking here, like actually just grab your hand and and put it into your stomach and find this key (laughs) and unlock your heart to giving yourself enough love. I think the world would be a much better place Um, because the more we love ourselves, it's not it's not a guilt something we should feel guilty about at all because the more we love ourselves, research shows the more love we're able to give other people. That's right. The more kind we are. The better functioning relationships we are, the more resilient we are against stress, the more time we spend with family and friends, which has positive impacts on families and relationships. And in the workplace, too, self-compassionate individuals tend to be more productive at work rather than less productive. And they also have time to replenish their energy. So on a weekend, they're 
able to go and spend time with those they love, do the activities they love. And, you know, that the brain needs a mental break. It doesn't want to be staying up till three o'clock in the morning and having connections with emails at 10 o'clock at night because you feel like you need to meet some work demand or, you know, finish the next task. What you'd really benefit from is, is taking time for yourself and thinking, you know, you deserve to feel re-energised and to go out there the best person you can be with the right fuel, with the right nourishment. And by that, I mean nourishment in terms of the things that you do, whether that's creative energy, whether it's relationship energy, whether it's food energy. Nourishment can come in so many different forms. Now, you touched on a lot of different things here, and I'm sure that uh, many of these are what you discuss in on your website. Tell us about Nourishing Roots. Uh, well, Nourishing Roots is something that's quite recent of mine. And while I've been researching public health and psychology and health psychology, it's just over my eyes so much more that we do have such a mind-body connection with food and over the last couple of years I've become absolutely obsessed with listening to podcasts and ones around like developing a positive relationship with food and body but none not many that have really connected both together and I thought for me if I'd had something in my life like a recovery buddy someone who understood what I was going through but looked at recovery as being more than just a meal plan and more than just you know loving my body it's actually a connection of the two and being able to develop that kind and loving relationship with food and the way that we look and all of our hobbies and relationships and looking at the bigger picture of health which is is what we say health is in public health it's not just food and nutrition it's and it's not just about exercise it's also about things like social inequalities it's things around stigma that are still in society and on my website nourishing roots and the concept in general it's about that there's actually what I think is this 10 fundamental elements to well-being and those are actually distinct from the nutrients they eat or the food that we eat or what we weigh it's it's so much so much deeper than that and there are actually easy ways that we can tap into actually experience a good quality of life and experiencing authentic happiness for a long period of time rather than for example losing a certain amount of weight or getting to that ideal weight feeling happy for a day that you've achieved that but then you've not got any real substance in your life to follow on from that there's no sense of meaning or purpose to carry on and a lot of people once losing weight or or gaining a healthy amount of weight they they still feel there's something missing Mm -hmm. and it's kind of that that sense of missingness and hole that was originally there before maybe a disorder with food and body developed so they might go to something, another form of disordered disordered behaviour, whether that's binge eating or a drug addiction or maybe the same behaviour. Or they might go into a destructive relationship and rather than actually stepping into a relationship with themselves and the whole planet. Oh, uh, just whether you want me to just outline what the actual 10 elements of nourishing roots were or whether you had any other questions. Just in a nutshell, I'll just tell you what the 10 elements are. And then drop to just briefly go through them, just very briefly about what well, the first element is what we've talked about anyway, it's compassion for the self and others. Um, the second one is about n- nourishment. So that's about nourishing the body. And it's not just about n- numbers. So the second element is literally called nourishment, not numbers. Uh, the third element is health at any body size. And there's lots of evidence at the moment that, you know, you can achieve health, even if you are relatively amount over your BMI or your ideal weight that health okay. can still be achieved. Four is creative expression. 
five is freedom and autonomy which very briefly is about getting back in tune with your values and acting in a way that best suits what you really believe in and feeling free to do what you want to do whether that's in work in relationship um number six is gratitude it's feeling grateful for the mm. things that we have already right rather than necessarily trying to always attain something it's actually getting back to basics and thinking well you know what do i already have now what resources do i currently have to be grateful for uh, number seven is mindfulness it's similar to gratefulness it's about just getting in line with the present moment and thinking that I can actually accept myself for who I am right now rather than actually living in the future or dwelling in the past and ruminating in a way that's going to cause me stress and anxiety. Um, number eight is about making connections and sharing stories. And so that's all about how we're so social beings and that it's so important for us to connect with others. And whether that's just about sharing our experiences or, you know, getting in touch with people who make you happy or you have a shared interest those things are really what contribute to like well-being even in like Mediterranean countries there's some evidence to suggest that it's actually not just the diet it's the way that they eat so it's around coming around a table taking time to spend with mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. yes and even like having a siesta at 12 o'clock it's those things that really add to your well-being and not necessarily the you know the nutrients that's in the Mediterranean diet uh, number nine is about pleasurable movement, which is about getting back in touch with what you love to do in terms of how, how you like to exercise. So that might not, not be pounded away on a gym treadmill. It could be going for a walk around the block. It could be taking a walk in natural green space, doing some yoga, something that actually might you might seem as, oh, that's relaxing. That's not doing anything for my body. But in a way, it's actually nourishing the body more if it's coming from a place of enjoyment rather than saying oh my gosh I've got to go to the gym or oh my gosh I've got to go to this class this really punishing class and actually wanting to go because likelihood it'll be more sustainable anyway Mm. you're more likely to go for a longer period of time and also up until you might be in your 90s you might still be going rather than I don't know many people in the 90s and hundreds who are still pounding away on a treadmill but honestly if, if that suits you and you're a person who loves that then by all means it's about getting to a place where you're actually really fully in in the moment and enjoying what you do and 10 the final element is called empowerment and all the other nine elements really feed into the element of empowerment because empowerment is about being kind of a bit critical really about the way society might send messages out to us that we aren't good enough now and empowerment is all about being able to use your nine elements that we've just touched upon in a way that allows you to you know be creative connect with others reach your full potential pursue the hobbies that you really want to do and live a life that feels meaningful and full of self-love compassion so without the other nine elements empowerment might not exist Uh, but empowerment I think fundamentally involves that that element of compassion it's I think it's so crucial and so yeah that's it really in a nutshell it's great you I think you brought a real new awareness of the relationship with food and ourselves that I had personally never thought about before, and probably a lot of people haven't. So I sincerely appreciate that. I appreciate all the clarity that you brought, and also your own story, which was coming from a place of pain, and yet now you're in a place of newness, completely Mm -hmm. you know a hundred percent turnaround and I thank you for for sharing that and what we will do of course is have these in your show notes 
and people will be able to contact you and and go to your website and um, ask any questions. You do have one-on-ones that you are have available on your website with people as well. Yes, yeah, that's a new service that'll be coming up very okay. soon. Okay. Is I'll be offering one-to-one mentoring and coaching. Perfect. All right. We'll certainly add that as well. So I thank you, Marissa. That was very enlightening and inspiring, and I sincerely appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Just that for anybody listening is that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, or however you feel in this moment, that you have the potential to learn to love yourself and get out of any negative relationship you may have with yourself and that you fully deserve to recover or get over any traumatic experience that you've come into contact with. I think everybody out there is like a beautiful human being and that we can all learn to love more by loving ourselves better. Excellent. And on that note, we'll say goodbye. And again, I thank you. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.